sometimes I would think, gosh, would they get more out of going to a church with a bigger youth group, you know, more people to be in Sunday school with and that kind of thing. I'd been kind of toying with that idea again. And then our education director spoke in church one Sunday and it's almost like he knew I'd been wondering about that because he said something about how it's not the number of people that you're impacting, but level that you are impacting the people that are the beneficiaries of what you're doing. And that really mm. struck me as that's right. It doesn't have to be a giant church or even in a medium sized church. If I'm impacting these dozen kids that I have in a Christmas program every year and we do our charity work for the local soup kitchen and those kind of things. If I'm only impacting a dozen kids but they feel this personally because it is a small group and then they're going to be giving for the rest of their lives then that's fine. I don't need to be impacting 120 kids or 1200 kids. Impacting 12 kids is also important. Hey there, welcome to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career, and also learn how to write the best manuscript possible so that you can hook your dream literary agent. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who eagerly wants to help you learn how to blend passion with business so that you can fall in love with the writing process and learn how to make an author career out of it. I'm going to do something different for today's episode. You may notice that this is being published a little later than my Lit Match episode time. And the reason for this is because I've spent the last couple of weeks saying goodbye and also celebrating my beloved aunt, Gail Hayes. I call her Gigla. She has been a role model throughout my whole life. And she also was another writer in my family. I think that Gig's perspective and understanding of the world helped influence my ability to live creatively with confidence. And I was lucky enough to have captured a piece of her wisdom on my previous podcast, Story Effect. Story Effect was really a podcast that I had years ago. The inspiration behind it was that I wanted to interview readers or writers on their favorite stories so that we could understand the butterfly effect of stories and how it connects us all. This episode is particularly special because what my aunt suffered from was glioblastoma, and she bravely battled glioblastoma over the last 21 months of her life. And the initial tumor itself actually attacked, first and foremost, the area in her brain that impacted her language. My aunt loved words. It was a giant part of her identity. And it was tragic to have to watch her lose her ability to use words. And at the same time, she created this amazing example of how to fight something that attacked part of her that was so dear to her. My sharing of this podcast is designed for two reasons. One, because I know it's not the typical type of episode that I usually share, but I do think that what Gigla, what I call my aunt, what Gigla has to share in this podcast speaks to messages that not only can impact all people and reflect on what's important in our lives, but also it can inspire and influence writers. So as a second part of this episode, I'm going to do what I did in my Jeff Kinney episode, and I'm going to pair it with the five big takeaways I learned from this interview. And through that, I'm going to give you exercises, writing exercises to inspire and help you with your own writing process. Before we do that, I would like to share a piece of Gig's obituary, which I'll include in the show notes. Gail Elizabeth Hayes, 
at 58 of Terre Haute passed away on Tuesday evening, January 24, 2023. She was an associate creative director and advertising copywriter for Williams Randall Advertising for 33 years. Gail was born February 26, 1964 in Terre Haute to Dr. Joseph R. Siefger and Joyce Ann Siefger. Gail said of herself, I'm a person who seeks joy and actually I never have to look far. I'd also like to add that while Gail was an advertising copywriter, she absolutely, without a question in my mind, had a knack for not only narration of creative stories, which I fondly remember growing up, she would read me specifically Stella Luna. Also, she blogged and she just had this way of pouring emotion, but simplicity into her creative writing. One of her most memorable creative writing blogs was about her love for cooking for her family and loved ones. And I will also include that piece of creative writing in the show notes for writers out there. I think that if you're ever having an off day or you just need room for inspiration, feel free to do some creative writing blogging yourself. It might open up doors to areas of your creative concepts that you didn't even know you had and that can be used in your work in progress. Back to the obituary. Gail was a valedictorian of the Terre Haute North High School class of 1982, where she played French horn in the marching band and was a drum major her senior year. She then graduated cum laude from Butler University in 1986 with a degree in public and corporate communications. She was also a proud member of Kappa Alpha Theta, and her Theta sisters always occupied a special place in her heart. Gail was a faithful volunteer for causes that she believed in. Some of these included PEO Sisterhood and Tri Kappa. She volunteered her marketing, writing, and radio skills to help promote each community theater session's lineup of shows, and she was a volunteer big sister with Big Brothers Big Sisters of Vico County. Gail was recognized as one of 2020's Women in Business in the October issue of Terre Haute Living Magazine. She loved her town fiercely and supported local events and businesses, especially coffee shops. Gail was an 11-year breast cancer survivor and volunteered with the local chapter of Susan G. Komen, with her main focus being to encourage women to be sure to have their annual mammograms. She was diagnosed with glioblastoma on April 3, 2021, and gracefully battled the disease until her passing. She lived life like it was a musical and frequently filled the room with joy as she broke into song and dance. Why? She could even accompany herself on piano. In today's episode, Gig pulls The Cricket in Times Square as her favorite novel, which she'll explain why. And she also shares her three favorite songs and the messages, the words in them that inspired and changed her life and what she hopes to encourage others to do as well. You'll notice that the audio is clear, but I want to warn you that the audio is a little muffled in comparison to my other episodes. I decided not to run it through studio sound in my editing, but distorted my Aunt Gail. She was on her cell phone and it was really important to me to keep her voice as natural as it could be because her voice unfortunately, was what her brain tumor attacked first and foremost. So I apologize in advance for it sounding a little less studio quality for this episode, um, but I promise you can understand the whole episode and you get to hear really what she sounded like instead of a distortion of her voice. With that is my great honor to humbly share this special interview with my aunt, Gail Hayes. 
I am so excited to introduce our next guest today because not only is she a wonderful human being who is very involved in stories and music in her life on a day-to-day, but also because she is my wonderful aunt who I probably in some point will call Gigla throughout this interview, even though her name is Gail because of a family history with that. So welcome Gigla. Thanks for coming on. And I'm so excited to chat about stories and how they've affected you and how you carry them into your day-to-day life today. Well, of course. And of course, I was thrilled that you asked me. And of course, you are in my phone as Abigail. uh... (laughs) Why don't you go ahead and just tell our listeners about the stories that you've picked to bring into the conversation today and why you picked them. The main thing we're going to talk about is The Cricket in Times Square by George Selden, illustrations by Garth Williams. When you ask me what maybe shaped something in my life, I was drawn more to those childhood books and it was was fun going down memory lane. I was doing research and Cricket in Times Square is really right up there with Charlotte's Web. And they were talking about how like these are the same type of reading levels and how they both have the cast of animals. But Cricket in Times Square calls more into having the boy be more of a prominent character in the story than Charlotte's Web. So that was an interesting difference, but they both did have similarities between the animal cast as well as being able to say goodbye to a friend. Did that resonate with you in a way? Is that something you felt like you learned when you were reading them for the first time or something that you learned in the process of just growing older and reflecting on it? Yeah, I think so. In fact, when when I first was thinking of this, and of course I needed to reread it because (laughs) it's been decades since I had, and just in case it wasn't what I remembered, I thought, okay, well, if not that one, then Charlotte's Web, because in Charlotte's Web, she's writing those words in her web to describe Wilbur, like wonderful or superb or whatever those words are. And I've always thought... It's the spider that deserves all those words. Wilbur's just sitting down there being cute. But that's the message of that, that Charlotte was just so giving for him. But it's the same thing with Tucker and Chester and Harry. And I know we're getting ahead. I haven't given you a little summary of the book yet. But those three animals are so giving to each other. And maybe, you know, some people might poo-poo that and say it's too idyllic. But why not have that as a model of how we all should be and want to be? I've considered this such a gift, this podcast, because I'm being pushed to reflect on stories that I have come across in my life, but may have not have given the attention in the way that I'm giving it now. That was one thing that really stuck out to me. And it's something that carried through a lot of prep work that you were sending over to me is being selfless and being giving. That message of selfless giving is very important to this. And a key thing that I would say I learned, and as far as the butterfly effect. I can't point back to the cricket in Times Square and say this is why I volunteer for things or help people or, you know, hope that others do well. But each little seed, I think, whether it was Charlotte's Web or this or anything, the way you're raised, the modeling of the adults in your life, all those kind of things take you down that path. But then the second lesson that I told you that I think I I got from this is just the power of music. And in the story, Chester Cricket, he lives out in the country in Connecticut, and he accidentally got in a picnic basket which got on the train and he ended up in Times Square. So very out of place. He's all wet and sad and he's discovered by Tucker Mouth who lives in Mario Bellini's. His parents own a newsstand there in Times Square in the subway station. So Tucker lives there and he's a very worldly mouth. He has treasures of money and fancy foods that he gets out of the garbage and things. And obviously they all can talk. And he's friends with Harry Cat. 
so right away, there's a little message of, oh, these two should be enemies, but they're friends. They celebrate each other. They have parties for each other as the time goes on. And of course, just like with any book, Chester does cause trouble. Mario's mom doesn't let the cricket around, but the dad is pretty easygoing and says, oh, you know, let Mario have a pet. But there are times like Chester in his sleep eats a $2 bill. And then they have a party and set fire to the newsstand, which is a really big problem. But it's after that when, well, and what I left out was, it turns out that Chester doesn't just chirp. He can play actual songs with his wings, and he has a perfect ear. So he listens to music on the radio, and then he can replicate it. It's after the fire that this becomes public to the humans, and he becomes famous throughout New York. This music professor or music writer or something hears it and you know writes about it. He's a writer for the New York Times, I think. So then all these people want to come. And of course, that really helps the Bellini business because it was scraping out a living before. And so the power of music to bring people together is just another good thing to learn from the cricket in Times Square because music is, you know, there are lots of phrases about that, but it's an international language and, mm-hmm. and all those kind of things. So that's why I told you I did pick out three of the songs that have the lyrics have meant a lot to me in my adult life. But I think that listening for the lessons of music has always been with me. I started taking piano lessons in first grade and took through 12th grade. I even had a few students of my own. And when I was a high school student, you know, people will say, well, what sports did you do growing up? Well, I did music. I love that you're bringing up how music is a universal language. When you're talking about music being universal language, the storytelling within the music is really a way to bring you into a lot of places and build a lot of relationships without even really needing to understand the lyrics themselves. Sometimes just the rhythm of the music puts you in a different mood because of the tone. And that's been really cool to experience. That's exactly right. And on the total opposite end of the spectrum, being with Mumu, who is my mom, Abby's grandma, is 85 and she's six months post a stroke that took away her ability to verbally communicate. And singing and poetry has been a nice way to, because you can't carry on a conversation, but the rhythm of poetry but just singing too. Yeah, all the emotions. Of course, the songs I'm going to talk about today, it's the words that I want to talk about. But with Chester's music, getting it back to the cricket in Times Square, obviously that was just violin sounding music. Even without word, music can bring people together with similar feelings and just the differences don't matter right now. That's such a beautiful concept because you're thinking about the abstractness that can come with music. You can tell a story even by saying that words aren't needed here. We're just going to bring people together and bring an understanding and a calmness and a deep rootedness, you know, through the melody and you don't need explanation. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And probably because I am a piano player. So Mm -hmm. those pieces don't have words. You are telling the story with just the music and that's completely right. And I think the other important message that I think is important when people are serving or giving or being helpful is to not do it for recognition mm-hmm. or acclaim or or you know whatever it might be that it's not 
drawing attention to yourself, which I think Chester did that too, when he was, obviously people were amazed that he was a cricket, but I think he was also thankful that because of the attention that he brought to the newsstand, the Bellini sold out for the first time ever. And he was happy about that. So it wasn't, made me think a little bit because the church that I raised my kids in is a pretty small congregation. They always only had a handful of other kids in their Sunday school class, but we still did Christmas programs. It was never big. And sometimes I would think, gosh, would they get more out of going to a church with a bigger youth group, you know, more people to be in Sunday school with and that kind of thing. I'd been kind of toying with that idea again. And then our education director spoke in church one Sunday and It was almost like he knew I'd been wondering about that because he said something about how it's not the number of people that you're impacting, but level that you are impacting the people that are the beneficiaries of what you're doing. And that really struck me as that's right. It doesn't have to be a giant church or even in a medium-sized church. If I'm impacting these dozen kids that I have in a Christmas program every year and we do our charity work for the local soup kitchen and those kind of things. If I'm only impacting a dozen kids, but they feel this personally because it is a small group and then they're going to be giving for the rest of their lives, then that's fine. I don't need to be impacting 120 kids or 1200 kids. Impacting 12 kids is also important. And then the other thing back to cricket in Times Square, because if I'm remembering right, really there's time of being publicly famous for being able to play Mm -hmm. lasts about a week. And then he's like, okay, I'm out. You know, like (laughs) mic drop, wing drop noting my humor there. Um, So then they figure out how he's going to, Harry Cat can read too. He's amazing. So he figures out the train schedule. So he's figured out how he can get back to Connecticut. And Tucker and Harry are sad, but they're planning a trip to Connecticut next summer to go visit him. But the one that I thought was the sweetest was Mario because he could have been really mad that he'd done all this for Chester. But Mario was very mature. You know, humans can be pretty selfish when how is this going to impact me? So Mario definitely could have thought, are you kidding me? You've helped us for a week and now you're leaving. Right. But the way it ends, Mario says, I'm not sad. I know this is the right thing for Chester. So he's very mature about that. And I think that's another lesson that we all need to understand that you don't want to have people overdo their giving either. That's why there's burnout in volunteer things, because you do always go back to the same people. Oh, they're so good at this one, this activity, and they've shared this part of the program every year. So we need them but but you also need to let people take a break so I thought that was important too that Mario was able to acknowledge that Chester had given but right now this is the right thing for Chester and I'm going to support that and I remember him saying something like he's gone and I'm glad because he wants what's best for Chester it can be a really hard thing for us as people to say I'm happy that so-and-so has moved on when we want them in our lives but then when you can find the joy for someone else to move on in a way because it's best for them if you can find the joy in that then that's a hard thing to do but when you can do it And when you practice that more consciously, I think that you get a lot more out of it in the long run. Exactly. I mean, two out of three of my children 
have moved far away from me to pursue their dreams. And I don't begrudge that at all. That's where they need to be. And, you know, Tim and I fully support that. And who knows where I tease Will that he, he has to come back. He's my, <laughs> my youngest. So I've teased him that since the first two flew the coop farther away, that means he has to stay close to mom, but he knows I'm kidding. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just have to divide our time among the, the three places they are. And for you to be saying, I give you permission because I know it's what you need to do. What a gift oh, of that course. is. Yeah. Well, and it's way easier for my generation than the previous, previous. Mm -hmm. with, with um, instant communication and social media and, mm -hmm. and doing, you know, we're talking to each other a thousand miles apart right now, like we're yeah. in the same room. And I love that side, but it kind of pulls us back into the idea of music and how music can connect us with stories. And I know that was a big part of something that you wanted to talk about today and how music has become a big part of your life. And you pulled three specific songs that you wanted to talk about with us today. Do you want to go ahead and let us know what those songs were, who the artists are, and a little bit about what each one of them is? I can. And of course, we don't, I'm sure we don't have the rights to play them, but people can certainly go find these on your favorite for YouTube. The first one I'm going to talk about is Something Beautiful by Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty. And they are very famous for their musicals that they do like ragtime. Well, this one is not from a musical, but they're known for musicals. They're amazing. Those those two come to mind right away, ragtime and, and Susical. But this one was on a CD of Stephanie J. Block that we had, I think is how we first knew it. And so then that prompted us to buy this music book, or maybe it was the other way around. Anyway, it doesn't matter. And then Samantha, my daughter, this was her song that she sang in the Miss Indiana pageant one year because we just loved the message of it so much. The reason it's called Something Beautiful is I was put here to make something beautiful, see something beautiful, be something beautiful before I go. And so it's not really talking about physical appearance, you know, that I need to work so hard to make myself look beautiful but to be beautiful and to leave something beautiful. When you go and listen to it, you'll find out that the first time I was hearing it and I was really, I try to really listen to lyrics. And it was one of those things where, because it never comes out and says, I'm a tree. But from the lyric, I was like, I'm pretty sure this is about a tree. Because <laughs> so it talks about my roots go deep, that I'm silent. Silent, I watch the clouds. Silent, I touch the water. Silent, I lean to people. Silent, I turn to light. And on and on. In the piano book we have, it does have notes from the lyricist and the, and the music writer from Aaron's and Flaherty. And this was inspired by her grandpa. I want to mm. say, and it is about a willow tree in Central Park. So this one is one of their songs that it's not from a musical, but I wish more people knew it because I just love the message of it. It says, my roots go deep in this place I know, though I may be old, still I grow. For I was put here to make something beautiful, make something beautiful before I go. I love that so much because no matter our age, we can do something that's going to remain once we're gone and will help people or 
gives people a good memory, you know, make people smile, or if we're fortunate enough to have enough money to leave a charity or to build a, a homeless shelter, whatever it is, what we're leaving behind is a legacy of being nice to people and yeah. inspiring other people to be nice. Maybe that's the something beautiful to leave. It's a beautiful song to listen to, but also when you really think about those lyrics. I'm put here to do something beautiful, to make something beautiful. And as I said, that's way beyond physical appearance. What are you doing with your life that's going to leave something beautiful behind when you're gone? I love that message. I used to be a creative writing and film teacher. And one day we talk about characters, but we were tying it back to a hypothetical question I proposed. Imagine that you had just died and you were given the opportunity to re-experience your life, not in the way that you felt, but in the way that you made others feel? Would you rather see your life going from death to birth or birth to death? And nine out of 10 kids were saying that they'd want to go from birth to death. And one of the kids raised his hand and he was like, what's the point of even going back to being a, a kid? You're not even going to really experience anything. And I was like, when you're a baby and you laugh for the first time, can you imagine the joy that you give other people? And it mm -hmm. kind of just like, I think the littlest things like that can just be so powerful in untouchable ways. When you're talking about being beautiful, the B is the key word there, right? Exactly. My next one is Hallelujah by John McLaughlin. There's another very famous song by that name. It's not that one. But John McLaughlin is from my home state of Indiana. He now lives in Nashville, but he is an amazing singer-songwriter who's intentionally stayed kind of, I think, private label and things. Beautiful Disaster was a song that was on the radio and things, but he has sell-out concerts. I've seen him at least five times. And I mm -hmm. sent you and your mom and your sister actually yeah, to him. Great. But he is amazingly talented on the piano and just such a real giving person. Many of his songs have meaning and have meant a lot to my kids and me. But the reason I call this one out, and it's also a really fun, the lyric video, music video he has for this has the lyrics going by it. But the chorus of it says, my life is now, not going to waste it on the piling up of the treasures in the sun, because maybe tomorrow never comes. And he's not saying that in a morbid way, like maybe tomorrow never comes. It's not a doomsday thing. But the message is, why are we worrying so much about accumulating stuff? instead of enjoying today. And that's really the big message of that one. Again, not going to waste it. My life is now not going to waste it on the piling up of treasures in the sun. So that's the main message of that one. It's just a very uplifting song. And I think it's a good message for when someone's embarking on a new phase of their life or mm -hmm. feels kind of caught on the hamster wheel of professional life or <laughs> whatever it is. It's just kind of another nice little reminder of enjoy today. I love the two categories of people that you pulled out there because I think it's one mm -hmm. of those, it's lyrics that can really impact and empower those people who are feeling stuck or caught in those more hectic times or more trialing times or more self-deprecating times. Do you have any suggestions on how those types of people could apply these lyrics in their day-to-day? -day? Well, also, I'm not advocating selling all you own and backpacking across America. I think you can 
still be responsible and you still should go to your job and you should try to make a living and save for retirement and do all those kind of things. But I I think it's just perspective and just keeping priorities. So do you want to work 60 or 80 hours a week and barely see your family or when you do you're so tired that you're grumpy to them you know those Mm -hmm. which is more important to make the extra money to have the bigger house you know and the nicer things or the fancier vacations or is it better to step back a little and have that quality time with your family? You know, it's just life decisions like that. And I don't mean yeah. to be preachy or anything. So yeah, for either group. And if you do feel like you're on a hamster wheel, how do you get some help? Right. You know, just going back to the Bellinis, they didn't feel like they were going anywhere with their newsstand and Chester was able to help that. I think it's also sometimes we and people who work hard and are responsible and all those kind of things, they think it's all on their shoulders and hard for them to ask for help. But I always think ask for help. (laughs) That's a way too to have a better balance in your life. It's not your responsibility to do every single thing. And then who knows, you might make another friend or somebody will find a talent they didn't know they had or or who knows what. And trusting in that, trusting that help will come when you ask for it. Your last song brings up one of my favorite artists. I think he's one of your favorite artists too. Pfeiffer Fighting, John Androsik is his actual name. Pfeiffer Fighting is a hockey term. He's a big hockey fan. Did you know that's why that's his? I think you told me that. Yeah, five minutes in the penalty box for fighting is what his name came from. And I remember reading about him. He was a math major in college and he decided to do that in case the music thing didn't work. So that makes sense because going back to why you should do music, music makes you better at math too. Mm. It's all, they're all interconnected. Anyway, tons of songs that mean something to me from him, including A Hundred Years, which always meant a lot uh, to my oldest Emmy. And that was our, that was what he chose for our first dance at his wedding. The song I wanted to talk about today is a newer one. It's called World. And back when I taught Sunday school, I did use this a time or two. It's just one that that really gets you thinking about what kind of world you want and what are you going to do about it. I brought this up. I help with the Susan G. Komen Race for the Cure in, in my community and the Volunteer of the Year Award moves around. So, so last year, it went to me and... I had just heard this song again, and so I had the microphone just for a couple minutes, and I just wanted to say that I was reminded again of this song that's saying, what kind of world do you want? Think anything. Let's start at the start. Build a masterpiece. Be careful what you wish for. History starts now. And I just think that part is so powerful because we do have the power, even if the world is just our neighborhood or our family, or our workplace. You know, when we say world, it doesn't have to be the entire globe. But this inspires you to think about how you, whatever your definition of world in the case is, what is your vision for that? And be careful what your, because history starts now, where your vision is, and you're going to go for it. You're going to get that in motion. It's just another really good song to listen to and when you're maybe getting starting a new project or taking on a new initiative or deciding I need to volunteer more where would my gifts be given best and those kind of things it's just a really neat song also one of the questions that he poses should there be people or peoples Mm. in some ways just like with most of the 
world wars and strife and conflicts and things are are because one group of people wants the other group of people to be like they are. I think that's an interesting question there. If we all could just be who we are and not try to force ourselves on others. But I think that's an interesting question. If you are starting over, it starts with you got a package full of wishes, a time machine, a magic wand, a globe made out of gold, no instructions or commandments, laws of gravity or indecisions to uphold. Printed on the box I see, Acme's build a world to be. Take a chance, grab a piece, help me to believe it. So it's really asking you to think about, okay, you've received this box. It's a do-it-yourself kit, and you get to start over with the world. What would you do? Obviously, none of us can do that, but in our own little corner of the world, and as I said, it could be in your own house, or it could be in your neighborhood, or your town, or your state, or however big, in your social group that you're in, we do have chances that the world isn't, it's not doomsday yet. We can, (laughs) in our own little space somewhere, we can do something to make a world that is good, just like Chester Cricket did to bring it back to that that little corner of Times Square he was able to reinvent for the Bellinis and for all those people who heard the music and were moved. That's gorgeous. I hope that all the listeners definitely go back and read Cricket in Times Square and listen to the songs. I hope they're as inspired as I have been by you today and getting this chance to talk. Oh, thank you. At the end of every podcast, I do like to do a final three. So what's your favorite quote? Why is this your favorite quote? And how do you think listeners can bring that into their own day-to-day in a way that's going to create that positive ripple effect? Sure. What I want to share is from Chapter 14 in the Cricket in Times Square. And this is where or it's during the big finale of Chester's last concert before he's going to go back to Connecticut. And it says, Chester's playing filled the station like ripples around a stone dropped into spill water The circles of silence spread out from the newsstand, and as the people listened, a change came over their faces. Eyes that looked worried grew soft and peaceful, tongues left off chattering, and ears full of the city's rustling were rested by the cricket's melody. And the reason that stood out to me is I just think sometimes there is such power in silence, and not silence, but in being quiet and listening, and especially, again, as we talked about the power of music. But sometimes we're listening to music to feel a certain mood. Sometimes we just need to be quiet and listen to other people to find out how we can help or what's needed or how we can do a better job at being a human. So I think that's why I like that. Just even though, as you can tell from our chat now, I do like talking sometimes listening and just being in the moment and quiet and learning from that is empowering. I love that you can't really communicate well until you have listened. So when you take the time to sit back and listen, you can respond in a more mindful and insightful way. Yeah. And again, that power of music. Thanks, King. You're welcome. I hope that Geek's interview inspired and influenced you as much as I know it did me, not only when I listened to the interview, 
but also now as I re-listened to it and reabsorbed the meaningful takeaways and messages that she shared. As a follow-up to this episode, I would like to now move us into the part two of this episode, where I'm going to pull up my five key takeaways from Gig's interview, as well as provide you with writing exercises or tips that you can use to help you complete and polish your work in progress. The first big key takeaway I wrote is, you can inspire and influence any reader at any age. In fact, sometimes people learn the most from children's books and carry those messages and characters with them throughout their lives. Overall, the main thing that I want to say about this one is every type of book can change any type of reader at any moment in their life. My favorites, for instance, range from childhood classics to contemporary reads. Well, I don't even compare my favorite books to the Harry Potter series because the Harry Potter series is its own category for me. I grew up with those books and those books taught me numerous lessons with memorable characters and J.K. Rowling's ability to write plots. I could go on and on and on. You've heard me with the first chapter episodes. You know how much I love Harry Potter. I also loved stories like the Narnia series, and particularly I remember this one that I even got at an elementary school book fair called Zinc, which was about a girl fighting leukemia. I would link to adult books like the Lord of the Rings series, The Ultimate Battle of Good versus Evil. I loved Lessons in Chemistry, which I did a first chapter episode recently, and many other classics that I could go on and on and on about. If you want to hear more recommendations for stories that I love, feel free to email me. I love to connect with you, and I'm curious as to what stories inspire you. All of that said, the point of me sharing this big takeaway is to say that every story you love has something to teach you about what kind of stories you probably strive to write. This could be anything from a book's theme to its characters and plot twists to dialogue, and then some. So for your exercise, for this big takeaway, I want you to look back at one book that changed your life or one book that you desperately loved. And don't worry if it's in the same exact category or age group as your work in progress. Bonus points if it is, but if it's not, don't worry about that right now. Then I want you to identify one element of it that you admire. Ask yourself, why do you love this? What about it sticks out to you? What are some ways that you can replicate the story's strength in your own story, but make it different? Once you've done all this, set a timer for five minutes and write one paragraph on your reflection. Then bullet point five to 10 ways that you can replicate these strengths or these attributes into your own work in progress. The goal for this is to help you make your story even more meaningful than it was when you set out because you have intention and understanding of what you're trying to accomplish on a deep level. The second big takeaway I have is music and stories bring people together. They have an innate ability to teach us perspectives and emotional experiences outside of our own, yet they also teach us how to be empathetic. By this, we can learn that we are all the same, each tied to the human condition in our own unique and shared ways. My point of pulling this takeaway out is to say that what stories offer are this indescribable ability to open your heart and mind, and therefore they can help you grow as a human being. This is one of the main reasons why I love stories so much and why I think they are so important in our society and culture. I want you to now think about how do you hope your work in progress will help others 
grow their perspective, and help them change so that they can become more empathetic to all people and living things. For an exercise, I want you to journal about this for 10 minutes before your next writing session. Watch how it motivates you by giving you purpose and intention in your story. After your session, reflect on how you felt during your writing time. Did it make a difference in your enjoyment level? If yes, how can you replicate this for your future writing sessions, especially on the days that you feel least motivated to write? The third big takeaway is that it's not about the amount of readers you touch, but the level that you impact them. You never know how many readers your book will impact and change. Because of this, it is especially important not to underestimate yourself and your writing ability and what your story has to offer. You can especially not measure or anticipate how deeply readers might connect with your book. And even if you only reach one reader, your story could be what saves that person's life. I know that sounds huge, but it's the reality of it. You just never know. So remember this the next time you feel like giving up in your book. Your book could be what saves someone's life. And if not save it, what makes it better? As an exercise, I'd like you to spend 10 minutes to develop and describe your target reader. It may help you to consider a comparable title that inspired you. You may even be your target reader. To help you figure this out, and if you can figure this out, you will have more intention in what you're writing and what you're revising so that it becomes the best version of your manuscript and clearly defines your target readers, which will inevitably help you in the marketing stages of the publishing process. To help you do this, ask yourself, what does your target reader's normal day look like? What other books are they reading? What type of story do they need in their life right now? And how will your story help them? What is the demographic of your target reader? And why would they recommend your work in progress to other readers like them? Write out this description, maybe even doodle your reader. And then I want you to actually print this out and pin this description and maybe your doodle to the wall above your writing station. I want you to look up at that reader. I want you to say something to that reader and I want you to channel them. When you're ready, get to work. The fourth big takeaway is to deliver lessons and themes through character growth and change. Notice I said the word through there. The reason for this is that we learn the best by seeing how a character changes, not by description that tells us how someone changes, but through character growth as they change across the journey, which ultimately shows us the plot. This is what makes the difference between a character and plot that is worthy of a full-length novel and a one-page explanation of what the story is. There's a synopsis, and then there's the story itself. Show us that character growth and change so that we feel it on an emotional and visceral level. To help you get started with this, here's your exercise. I can't stress this enough. You need to figure this out. Ask yourself, how does my main character or characters behave and make decisions at the end of the novel? And why does this teach readers one, if not the biggest messages in the story? How does this change reflect the opposite? Here's the key now. How does it reflect the opposite of how the character felt or acted and behaved in the beginning of the book? If your character, your main character, does not change, you need to figure out then how did important supporting characters change because of them. All stories are about change, and change is tied to a character's growth. So figure this out, the beginning and the end, what are your story's bookends and how do your characters fall on each side of it? 
And if you don't have a change, make sure that you develop one before you start writing and especially before you start revising. My fifth and final takeaway from Gig's interview is don't worry about all the steps you need to take in order to publish your book. Focus instead on what you can do today and enjoy it. Writing a book is one, one day at a time. If you've ever received feedback from an editor, you've probably experienced a suffocating moment of doubt. In this moment, you've probably felt like you don't have what it takes to finish your book. And that's if you don't experience this feeling before ever even finishing a draft of your book. What I like to remind writers in this moment is that you don't need to write a perfect draft or even next drafts. And notice I use the plural there in one go. I honestly don't know if any writer has ever managed to do this. Books are made through revisions and books reach their readers through a series of other important steps that you're required to take in the publishing and marketing process. But while books can feel like a lonely game, they're not. If you don't believe me, just take a look at the acknowledgement section in the back of a book. And don't forget that any published book you read is actually its best version after the writer and their team have gone through all the hard stages. Of course, this isn't to undermine that certain stages in your writing and publishing process require you to plan out future steps. For instance, planning out your novel can help you write it and likely make you enjoy the process more as you write it. And the same goes for planning a book launch that can help you launch it and keep you on track. But overall, you will feel overwhelmed if you worry about trying to tackle all the big steps at one time. You write a book one day at a time. And if you don't give up on it, if you continue to push, if you continue to be resilient and hold on to the reason why you started writing this book in the first place, I believe that you can improve it to a place where you are ready to publish it or either query an agent who will help you take it across the finish line. And when you enter that submission or publishing part of your process, you can also tackle those publishing and marketing steps one day at a time. For your exercise, I want you to first start small. Make a weekly plan for what you can accomplish each day this week. Then we're going to take this a step further. I want you to set high goals for yourself. Like how many days is it going to be until you finish a manuscript? Or how many days is it going to be until you finish your revised draft? Or how many days until your manuscript will be ready for you to query it? This needs to be something that results in a finished, polished manuscript. You need to be realistic, however, on how your goals intersect with your real life. Once you've done this, take out your calendar and work backwards. Jot down what you can accomplish each month, each week, and each day. And keep in mind it's okay, you may need to skip some days. This also counts thinking time for your story, planning time for your story. This should also count critique time, beta reading time, all these important steps that we can talk more about later on the podcast. But I want you to think about first what you're actually trying to accomplish and when you're trying to accomplish it by, and then we can talk about how to actually get you there. I'd love to hear from you and hear what your plans are. If you have any interest in podcasts where I can provide you advice on how to actually accomplish your writing and publishing endeavors. When you're done, print this plan out and keep it on your writing desk so that you can manually check off each day's, week's, and month's accomplishments as you go. Manually doing this will feel far more rewarding. There's something about putting pen to paper that is just going to be much more satisfying than electronically checking it off. The last thing I want to say is that the trick to this is that you can set high goals, but the reality of accomplishing those endeavors means breaking it down into much smaller, more manageable, more bite-sized goals over a realistic time period. This is dependent on the individual writer, and we must not judge ourselves for what that is 
and we must make peace with our timetable and our process. The good news is that until you've traditionally published your book, you're not bound contractually to deadlines. So take comfort in that silver lining. I know I found comfort in it. At the same time, I want you to develop consequences for missed deadlines or find an accountability partner or maybe a book coach so that you can meet your deadline and get it to a place where you can query it. And that's all that I have for today, this special, personally special interview for my aunt, Gail Hayes, and the five big takeaways that I think can apply to writers paired with exercises to put those takeaways to work. Thank you again for supporting me and joining me for this episode of Lit Match. I'm excited to bring you another literary agent interview next week and so grateful for this community and proud of this writing community who continues to be resilient and passionate about what they are doing. The work that you are doing is meaningful and I can't wait to read it. If you haven't had a chance to rate and review the show and you'd like to support me and like to help me reach more writers like you, I'd absolutely appreciate and love if you could rate and review the show and refer the show to your other writing friends. If you have any recommendations about what you'd like to hear on the podcast, please email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com or sign up for my newsletter so that you'll be the first to hear when there's new content on the podcast. Until next time, happy writing. And let me know when you sign with the best literary agent for your business and writing career. I cannot wait to hear that news as well as celebrate your book when it comes out.